Hello and welcome back to Hiv Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. We're thrilled to be welcoming three fantastic crime fiction authors to our digital stage. Tina Baker, V.L. Valentine and Catriona Ward. They'll join us and host Miranda Duess for a fantastically fun podcast event celebrating books with bite. Don't forget that you can get the latest books from every single one of our podcast episodes by heading over to the podcast section of our website. So sit back, relax and join us as we bring HIF into your home. This event is kindly sponsored by Viper Books. Hello everyone and welcome to Venomous Reads, which is a showcase of some of Viper's spring 2021 authors. Uh, My name is Miranda Jewess and I am the Senior Commissioning Editor on Viper. We launched in 2019 as an imprint of Serpent's Tale and we publish books with bite, psychological suspense, historical mysteries, police procedurals and gothic thrillers. This panel is a chance for you to get to learn a little bit about three of our brilliant writers, their books, their writing processes. Hopefully I'll be able to convince them to give up at least one deep dark secret. (laughs) (laughs) First up is Tina Baker, whose debut psychological thriller, Call Me Mummy, uh, was published on the 25th of February. Tina, in two minutes or less, can you please tell the viewers a little bit about yourself and your wonderful book? Uh, so my name's Tina. I'm from Colville in Leicestershire, studying Zumba and great things, working as a fitness instructor. It's my first book. It's the story of how women cannot win and mummies cannot win. And it's uh, even though I'm uh, my energy is a bit my little pony, it's very dark. Uh, some cold black humour through it, and it's also about the healing power of sausage. <laughs> sausage is a dog, I should clarify, but yeah, sausage is a dog. Any animal has got healing powers. But yeah, it starts with a woman desperate like myself, who steals one basically, the woman who loses the child and the child's voice, because I'm very immature, is quite loud in the book. So yeah, that's what it's about. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Next up is Katriana Ward, whose gothic thriller, The Last House on Needler Street, uh, is publishing on the 18th of March. Uh, Kat, your book is so full of spoilers. Uh, (laughs) Many reviewers have said that it's brilliant, but it's really tricky to review but give it your best shot. What is the pitch? Um, so uh, The Last House on Needless Street is uh, about Ted, who's a very lonely man who lives um, in a boarded up house at the end of Needless Street, which just uh, abuts onto the, uh, the great wild uh, Pacific Northwest forest uh, in the state of Washington, D.C. Sorry, state of Washington. Um, and uh, he lives with his daughter, Lauren, uh, and his very disapproving cat, Olivia. Um, and uh, in the area, children have been going missing for some years, unexplained disappearances, and nobody's found. And when his uh, the vacant house next door is tenanted by a woman named Dee, who thinks that Ted had something to do with these disappearances, and indeed with the disappearance of her younger sister, uh, Lulu. Uh, a long time ago by a nearby lake. 
Uh, and then finally, when Ted's own daughter goes missing, uh, suspicion turns to terror and events rush it up. And that's probably as far as I can go. I think that's best. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And finally, we have B.L. Valentine, a.k.a. Vicky Valentine, whose debut historical thriller, The Plague Letters, is published on the 1st of April, which is incidentally my birthday. Um, oh, wow. Making a note of that. Thank you. Uh, Vicky, can you give the viewers a brief idea of what the book is about? Yes. So this book is set in 1665 in London during uh, what was the last significant plague epidemic to hit the city. Before 1665, the plague was cyclical. It came to London about every 20, 25 years, killed about 30,000 people, went in hiding, came back. 1665, it came back bigger than ever killed about a thousand a hundred thousand people um and then it disappeared and we're not really sure why it never came back so that's the historic that's the backdrop for this book um and the people the main characters in the book are based on real people living during that time and uh i drew upon their letters their memoirs and their their medical treaties that they wrote about plague to kind of build these characters um, but at its heart, it's a murder mystery, and it's uh, one of the main characters, Simon Patrick. He was the real-life rector at Covent Garden, St. Paul's Covent Garden. That's the church on the west end of the piazza. And um, those parishes, St. Giles in the Field, St. Martin's in the Field, St. Paul's, they were hit hard early on in the plague epidemic. So as the dead carts are bringing in bodies to Simon's burial ground, he notices something strange about some of the bodies, and it looks like someone there's strange marks on them and it looks like someone's experimenting on the plague victims that someone's experimenting possibly killing people who are already dying so he tries to figure that out he goes to a group of medical men to get their help they call themselves the society for the prevention and cure of plague and those are also based on some real life people living and working during the plague um, but then we have this dark horse come in this 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 woman named penelope she's kind of a mysterious character and she decides these guys are just taking way too long to figure out what's going on. And partially it's because the victims are all younger female servants, like, uh, uh, you know, the lower, the poorest sort, and these men just don't consider them important. So she comes in and she jumpstarts this investigation and, and sees what she can do to find out who, who the murderer is. Thank you, Vicky, very much. As you'll probably be able to tell from those wonderful summations, these three books are all very different. They're different time periods, they're different parts of the crime and thriller genre. However, all three of you were inspired by real life people and events when you wrote the books. Um, so Kat, first, you've said that you were inspired in part by Ted Bundy, by the forests of the Pacific Northwest when you were writing Needless Street. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, historically, um, as an emotional setting, for, first of all, it's very resonant because um, that, that particular corner, you know, of, of the U.S. Has, is, is the habitual, historic and, and, and you know, well-trod uh, hunting grounds of, of serial killers. Uh, the Green River Killer and, and um, Ted Bundy. And, and it's, it's, um, it's a place to get lost. Uh, it's a place where people can disappear into into this great roiling wilderness, and I think there's something about a wilderness as well, which really is it, it, 
it touches something the atavistic in us because there aren't that many left really there aren't many places where you can walk uh, walk into it and just disappear we're so monitored we're so we're so kind of tracked and gps and and um so emotionally i felt like it was it was uh, a place that had all sorts of little chimes and echoes with what i wanted to talk about um and just just as well it's it's it is it's a primordial environment these great reaching jurassic ferns and it's um it's i think it's the only temperate rainforest in the world so it's an extraordinary environment in from every single perspective it's it, it's naturally uh, um an anomaly and emotionally an anomaly and um and also historically it has swallowed people whole and that's i think i think you have to have I think that sort of risk and that that roiling wild darkness was something I wanted as a backdrop. I'm quite creeped out now. Thank you, Kat, very much. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely bring that forest to life. You make it very sinister, but also very kind of alive. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> I think there's a, there's a kind of beauty to it as well, an awareness of it being sort of something rather extraordinary that also helps with that as well. You know, it's it's. It, the forest itself doesn't care about us. It's not. It's not an entity. It, it's. It's the indifference of it, perhaps, which mm. makes it so frightening. No, I think you're absolutely right, Tina. Are there real cases of child abduction, which is what Call Me Mummy is all about, and also the kind of society's response to those abductions that you drew on for Call Me Mummy? Yeah, um, as a journalist, I didn't cover any of those. I was more the television critic, so you know the soap opera side of that, but. Um, Madeleine McCann case just went straight in because they're from Leicestershire, Catholic, and vilified by the press, absolutely crucified by the press. Um, and they were a lovely middle class family. And then you've got the Sharon Matthews case. Now, what if that mother had genuinely lost the child? It was, it was, you know, the class thing, the fact that you couldn't look at those cases without thinking that woman cried too much and so she's fake or that woman was too stony faced and it was almost like somebody had this model in their brain of how you should behave in those scenarios and I thought you, you don't know how you'd react in those scenarios and at the time I was trying to become a mom and couldn't and failed and I just I remember just thinking would it be better like me now never having a kid or having a kid and then losing them and the other thing that was going on at the same time was i was working down finsbury park mosque just after the press had sort of vilified people of that religion you know before things changed and i was teaching those women at the mosque keep fit um, and, you know, it, it just sort of brought up ideas of religion and where religion becomes fanaticism. Uh, my own mum's experience of being abused by nuns because she was left handed, you know, her arm was tied behind her back, she was beaten. And I just think these are people who are supposed to look after you. So if religion gets twisted and warped, 
where, where can you go as a woman in any fanatical religion? We don't come out of it very well. You know, I, I sort of make a joke about it that, you know, as a Catholic, you've got the career options of being a virgin, a mother or a whore. You know, there isn't anything else. If you're a stay-at-home mum, people look down on you. If you're a career mum, people look down on you. If you do it all, people look down on you. And then the social media sort of come on and pick you apart. So literally it's that feeling of, I'm not good enough, you're not good enough, we're not good enough. Um, and the story sort of, they're the roots, very convoluted roots um, to make something which is basically a psychological crime thriller. I mean, you definitely really bring that out because we see the social media, you know, sort of Facebook and Twitter and people kind of being for or against the woman who's lost her child and it, it's, it's horribly vicious, but it also is so familiar. And I think that's why it works so well, because you absolutely have seen those kind of comments and it's just awful. Um, yeah, I, I, I've only had a little bit of it. So I went on Celebrity Thick Club, three stone heavier, just when my mum had died and people were saying, oh, look at the jazz hands and the fact that she's crying. Well, you'd cry doing press ups in the snow at seven in the morning, whether your parent had died or not. So, you, you know, it's like, even if you're being genuine, somebody's got an opinion, it's usually a judgment and it's usually vicious. Sadly, sometimes it's other women piling on to other women. I mean, uh, it's really worrying, but from a journalist's point of view, journalists also create the narrative. So if you're the sort of mother that Kim is, who's very working class, got tattoos, she smokes and drinks, you know, horrors when pregnant, they will pick those pictures of her smoking and drinking and flicking the V at the cameras. And just then she becomes the scummy mummy because you never see the other side to it. So it's, it's nasty. It's well, the book's quite nasty as well, but it's, it's just, you know, it's just taking what's a real life thing and just running with it really. Yes, absolutely. And Vicky, obviously your novel is very much inspired by real events, but I was wondering how, how did you actually find the real plague letters that were written by Simon Patrick? Like, at what point and how did you find them? Yeah, um, so I was doing my master's in the history of medicine around 2005 in London. And um, I just attended this, this talk by this, these two incredible historians, uh, Dorothy and Lloyd Moot, and they had written a book about the Great Plague, the 1665 Plague. And uh, just as a toss-off in that book, they mentioned this, this man, um, the Reverend Simon Patrick, and uh, the letters that he was writing uh, during the, uh, the, the, the outbreak. He had stayed behind when most people who could afford it of his, of his kind of class had left. But it turned out that these letters he was writing were to a married woman. And they just like skipped over that part. Shocking. And so I was like, well, this is a little, <laughs> there's something interesting here. And so then I went and I uh, traced his letters. And, there, you know, the amazing thing is at that time, 2005, you know, you had to go to the library and they're published in the back of his autobiography, which is nine volumes. He was a very prolific writer. But now it's all digitized. And like, I can just do all this research online. But anyway, these letters to this married woman, Elizabeth, um, they're, uh, you know, it's clear that, um, they had a thing for each other, but were restrained. But the, the, the sad part is, um, for me, her letters didn't survive. Um, 
And I would have loved to have seen what she had written back. Uh, it's just so rare to have letters from people in uh, that time survive, and even more so if those letters are written by a woman, uh, and she was not an upper class woman. She was not of the, she, you know, she, um, what they call at that time, she was the middling sort. So that's a, it's a real loss. So I had to make up her side of the conversation, but that was a lot of fun. I think you did it well, because you made her, I mean, I hate her personally, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, you yeah. certainly gave her a well-rounded, if rather unlikable character. So <laughs> love that. Um, and that kind of leads me into my second question, uh, talking about sort of your masters. Sort of, you all quite have a personal stake in the kind of stories that you tell. Um, but because your job is a senior science writer at NPR, and you've been reporting on COVID for a year now, um, and you've done Ebola and Zika, but you wrote this book back in 2018, 2019. So how did your background in epidemiology influence writing a historical mystery for entertainment? So the reason why I, I you know, I, I've, my, so like you said, my career is in journalism, science journalism, but I always loved history because it's a chance to dig into someone else's life and experience that I could never possibly have. And so, you know, part of it was wanting to see what it's like to live in the 17th century London in that world. And then the, the thing that was interesting about plague was I had thought at the time, this was something I would never in my life experience. This was a totally like the idea of such a deadly epidemic was foreign and impossible for people in the West, as in the United States, Europe, to, to ever really see again on that scale. I thought it was lost to history, and, and for a good reason. We were happy it was lost. Um, so in January 2020, when we first started hearing about the emergence of coronavirus, I was floored. And even then, we were having conversations where I work um, that it could never, you know, you would never get above 10,000. You would never get it because it was just impossible in this day and age. We knew too much. We had the medicine, the technology. And so every step of the way, uh, this year, last year, shocked at what has happened. And as you know, in the U.S. right now, we're now at 500,000 dead. So it's just crazy that what I thought could never happen has happened again. Um, yeah. Well, it's probably but, more cheerful, but Tina... Yeah. I mean, your novel, obviously, you've mentioned it comes from a very personal place. Have you found it sort of cathartic writing out this fictional scenario? Yeah, and, you know, I'm a sober, so, you know, literally <laughs> electrocution as I'm writing the stuff. Um, you know, because it's, it's not just because I haven't, disclaimer, stolen a child, but I've wanted to. But it's also, it brings up stuff about, you know, my very flawed relationship with my own mom. You know, that's never going to get fixed because she's dead. You know, so it, it's very personal stuff. The grief of never being a mother, not having a mother. The cats are almost bald by that mothering has to go somewhere. So, you know, I'm either stroking Jeff or stroking the cats. But yeah, it is cathar cathartic and you know, it makes me confront different bits of myself because I'm not very nice a lot of the time, you know, and it's dead easy for me to judge somebody else, you know, by, by their class. And you can tell by the way I say it that, you know, I'm on very much Team Kim and very much anti some of the people who look down on Kim. But then I'm just as bad as them because I'm judging them. So, yeah, 
um, ultimately it's sort of um, to use a Vicky thing, it's like one of the postural boils of plague just erupting. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's very vivid. Nobody's eating. Cat, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really hope that nothing that happens in Needless Street is based on your own life. But um, have like bits of you or perhaps cats that you have known crept in. There's a very, very important cat in it. Any very, yeah, there's exactly. I'm going to take this opportunity to show him with a little cat pin that's a, that um, that um, Miranda's Miranda made for me for made for pre early every, readers. Every pre-order confirmed. <laughs> um, Olivia the cat. It's yeah, it's strange. I think I have a slight affinity for the monstrous. Really, like I have a. I think there's a there's a great deal because I think that relationships certain relationships mean so much to me. Like familial ones and 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 uh and friend and certain friendships there's an intensity to them that i can't resist i think all storytelling is a sort of endless relentless kind of what if what if what if and i think that there's just this urge to test those relationships and to explore the potentially monst monstrous in them if you know what i mean uh there my my <laughs> luckily my own family couldn't be more different from some of the ones that i described in my novels but i think maybe that's what in fact my parents one of the first things they asked me when they read my first debut was they said it's a great book katrina are we in it and I, <laughs> I was like no 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 you're not no you're not but, but there's a sort of they're so powerful and 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 totemic in my mind and and in in they they occupy such a big part of my emotional landscape as they do with many people i think there is this dreadful urge just to turn over the stone and see what's underneath what would it be like if if these if these powerful um all-consuming relationships were uh misaligned and and monstrous i also just like i am just the, the sort of person who's who's afraid of everything and i think that's why i hope write about it persuasively because if i'm not afraid then i don't see how the reader can be afraid you know um and i'm terrified of things like um uh losing lo you know losing people or or having or having these the, these these kind of relationships run askew so i think that's just yes so i just sit down and write my nightmares every day that's what happens to me well your books certainly scare me even if they don't scare you they do that's that's i think that's why they work they really scare me <laughs> Oh, God. Now, um, I don't think I'm giving too much away when I say that all of your books have either big twists or they have sort of reveals that really change the reading experience and where the reader is going to be taken by surprise when we learn something about a character. Um, now, without spoilers, no spoilers. Um, I'd like to know how you kind of go about writing them. Do you plan them from the outset or do they just happen? Um, Tina, um, so when you, did you plan the, sort of the revelations uh, or did they come as you wrote the characters? Well, when I did my MA in novel writing at City, um, I shouted a lot because it's like, you can't sit down and plan a novel. Now, sadly, Miranda, you know that's very true uh, because I, I, I just couldn't do that. You know, I, if, if there was a, an exam in plotting, I would have failed it because I sort of have to get into it. It's almost like being a method actor. You know, that's how it feels. I just have to do it how it feels and then go over it and over it and then sort of try and mold it. Uh, so it's a bit organic. 
Um, so to me, when I, I didn't know I was thriller and I didn't know I was crime, which sounds really daft, but I didn't. And, and then apparently I was, and it was like, then I started write, reading and writing more in that ilk. But yeah, I don't feel I've got a twist necessarily. I, I know you find out more. Um, it's like the tip of an iceberg and then what Slow reveals. Yeah, more, more reveals and a plot twist. I wish I could do those. So <laughs> Kat knows that when I, when I read Needless Street, it was like, <gasps> it was like one of the best that I, you know, I loved it. Um, I like the big twists. Often they don't work though. No. So if it works well, like Needless Street, it's like, yeah, I don't know how I do that though. <laughs> tips just send by return of post. Fair enough. I mean, yes, Kat, your book of all the three has the most, what we sort of classically define as big, big twists. Yeah. Um, were they planned before you started writing? I don't see how they could not have been, to be honest. Yeah. Obviously you can't yeah. tell us that much. I think it was, I think I wanted, I, I think I wanted to write, I think, I, you know, so my first two books are like very much of a, they're more classic gothic, I think. And I think I got to the stage where I just wanted to write, I, I, I found maybe that was a sort of a safer place for me to be as a writer, you know. And when I came to, to I mean, the idea for Needle Street came about, which I won't say how, because even that's a spoiler. Um, I just had this blinding moment of I didn't have to stick to what I was trying to aspire to, which is the sort of platonic ideal of a gothic novel. I could just go completely, if you will, crazy and and write something that was just as as strange and all kind of awe-inspiring in 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 its subject matter um, as as I as I as I sort of found it. It yeah, it's a, it's a funny one because you you sort of write usually you, i think in the past i've written my twists in reverse like you what you work back you know you kind of discover the novel as you write and then you you reverse engineer it this i don't think i did need the street like that i thought it was really i just had this i, I had this idea <laughs> this is difficult i had i had this idea and i i wanted the reader when they came to understand what the novel was doing to have that same moment of revelation and kind of as i said earlier awe about how amazing the world is really um i i wanted to make it earned as well i i think i there should be a pleasure in uncovering there should be a sense of satisfaction and the world opening out not a sense of being tricked or duped or having the rug swept out from under you so i wanted to really put that in place as well but yeah i i started from the opposite end from from the end i usually start from when i'm writing something that's got a bit of a twist i started knowing where i was going and uh, and and writing towards it Knowing what I do about it, I don't see how you could have done it any other way, to be honest, right. your head falling off. Yeah. Um, and what about you, Vicky? Did you know, did you always know who the murderer was going to be? Don't tell us who it is, but did you always, always know or did it just happen? I did always know. Um, but the first draft, I did not really plot out. I knew who my characters were and I knew who the murderer was. And, uh, the first draft is really terrible because it's just like, I, I, I just, I, I just, I just totally got lost in writing various scenes and dialogue. Like I would just have the character, like, you know, I, I was spending, I was enjoying my characters too much 
and not forgetting and not remembering that they need to actually go somewhere, not just sit in the dining room, um, throwing wine glasses at each other, right? And just like debating I mean, plague exactly. and things like that. Yeah. I mean, they do do quite a bit of that. I can see why they that do. They do. And I would say, I would say so good. <laughs> way too long in the party, you know, way too long because I love inhabiting you know, these historical worlds that I can't be in. And I love thinking about the walls and the clothes. And so I'd spend way too much time in that. So I eventually, I had to go back and like actually plot it, you know? And um, so plotting is very hard for me, but I think it, for me, my process, it's essential, right? I need to plot it out before I start writing. And, um, or else I just spend too much time in the wrong places. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oops. Let me breathe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want any of you to take this the wrong way, obviously. Uh, but I've read all your books, and I have. You are all utterly fascinated by weird loners. Um. So, I mean, what is it about people who are so divorced from society? I mean, Cat, your main character, Ted, lives in a house with boarded up windows and he hasn't even let his cat go outside. Is that sort of isolation a useful setup for a story? I think, I think it is. I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of storytelling and certainly a lot of storytelling that tends towards the, the gothic or the mystery involves putting your character in as bad a position as you can possibly get them into and then either getting them out or not, you know. Um, I think the sense of isolation is something that, I don't know, I, I think most of my characters are quite lonely. Um, and I don't think I'm a very lonely person, but I think what we draw on, someone said once, you always, you always set your novels where your dreams are set, which is always where your childhood, which is always where your childhood is set. Um, I don't know how true that is, but it made me think about it a little bit. Like I grew up in um, Madagascar and Kenya and Morocco, and we, you know, this is. I, re I remember getting telexes. It's very, very cut off from 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 the world. And also, you move if you move every three years pre-internet. There's no possibility of keeping in touch with anyone really. That's it. There's a sort of bookend um, each each time. Um, and at the school in Madagascar that we went, I went to for four years. There were I think eleven children in the whole school. So the teacher would like teach one row of us and then go back teaching, you know, row by row, first grade, second grade, third grade. And um, I, I think that, I think while that, it was an amazing childhood and I, I saw things which were incredible, like, you know, the Malagas, Malagas rainforest is, just like, is, a, is a, a wonder of the world. But I think there is a sort of sense of like the lonely child that runs through my books. And all it's of funny because all, all of them. Well, I'll take it from you. <laughs> because I would be the worst equipped to judge in a way. Because I I don't realise I'm putting these things in. It's all that it's strange what bits of you you use or don't use. Like I didn't someone asked me the other day, did I ever have, have a black cat? Because black cat is so strongly featured in Neither Street. And I was like, Oh yeah, I did actually have a black cat. My best friend from when I was three to when I was 19. How weird. <laughs> and yet, how did it end up in a book, I wonder? <laughs> it's a strange subconscious process of writing where you're walking this tightrope between, um, the, between the organizing mind and this great the subconscious sort of dark sea where ideas surface for a moment and then dip back down and you never, never quite know where you get them from. <laughs> um, Vicky. 
uh, in the play letters, as we've mentioned, Simon Patrick is nominally the main character, um, but anyone who's ever read it, um, the hero is Penelope, who just barges, exactly, thank you, Tina, she's wonderful, she just barges her way into Simon's household, goes hunting a murderer, but she's an orphan, mm. I mean, she's very peculiar, um, and she's completely self-sufficient, she has to be. How did you create that character? Is she based on someone, or just, is she you? This is possible. So, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I'm, I'm currently working on my second book. The main character is a woman and she's very different from Penelope. Penelope is just out there. This other woman is very repressed. And one was easier for me to write than the other one. Penelope was so easy to write. And you know why? Because she gets to do the things that I'm not able to. She gets to... Um, be herself. And, uh, you know, I think it's back what Tina was saying, um, you know, growing up, clearly I have a lot of freedoms, um, a lot of freedoms, uh, a, a lot of things that have helped me. But there's also been a lot of limits placed on my life, starting with like, I wanted to be an archaeologist and my 12th grade biology teacher who I love, love, love said, Oh, no, you should be a kindergarten teacher. There's nothing wrong with a kindergarten teacher, but it's like she just squashed my dreams right there, right? And so like there's various points in my life where that happened, where people just said, no, 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 you can't do that. And, I, and, and in my career, you know, there are things that men are able to do just in general, right, that women can't, big and small. So you take somebody like Penelope and she's just decided, I'm going to do what I want. Um, and that's what made her so fun to write and so liberating and how she comes up with all these crazy ideas. Um, but at the same time, we're loners. Um, there's a very real cost to behaving like that. And there's a reason why I haven't personally taken that risk. I'm afraid of that cost. And the cost of Penelope is she really is outside of the community, right? She's not a full on member because she doesn't agree with their rules. She doesn't agree with their rules. She's always going to be an outsider. So she has to decide which one of these things is more important to her. And, um, but I also think she, she gets pretty far with um, who she's decided to be. Yeah, I mean, she's wonderful. I love Penelope. Uh, I wish she was real. Um, Tina, I feel, I mean, in Call Me Mummy, I feel like both Mummy, the kidnapper, and Kim, who's the mother of, of the little girl, Tonya, um, even though Kim has a lot more people around her, they're both very lonely women in quite different ways. I mean, do you agree? Do you think they are both very lonely? I think, you know, at the end of the day, we all go home and it doesn't matter who's lying next to you. You know, you're in your own head and anybody who does writing or reading um, quite so much as we do, um, ultimately, a lot of life is, is in these four walls. So, you know, uh, my background, I do completely agree with Kat that, you know, your childhood becomes your template. So, you know, I grew up in like fairgrounds and fairgrounds are all bright lights and big noises and shouting. And now I earn my living shouting, you know, teaching keep fit classes. But inside, I'm very quiet, quite shy. And yeah, at times very lonely. And I, I realized writing... Uh, the book that that complete loneliness is because my own mum, God bless her, God rest her soul, um, would punish me by not speaking to me 
uh, not for a day, but for literally months when I was quite little. Mm. That silence, it's like the resounding silence. So I used to make up worlds and stories quite early on. And I think that was a real escapism. But, you know, mm. that's my warped experience. I do think all of us, you know, yeah born alone and you die alone you know all of that it's like really cheery stuff but thank god i mean i've got um a husband who had a similar although completely different um really harsh upbringing um and we found each other quite late in life for me and too late for me to have a kid but you know i think you just need a pal um and this community of like the book community i've been shielding for a year um it i would have gone insane if i hadn't had zoom to teach my classes and to just talk to people on twitter and to write my my novels you, you know so it's like that loneliness is it's like i'm living that now i couldn't even read your novel vicky as you well know until i had my first vaccination because i would have given me myself an anxiety induced asthma attack I have and team Penelope all the way, but you know, I, I put that off for months and months because I'd start reading it two or three times and I'd go, <gasps> and I'd feel it, you know, there was that bit where London is literally cut off because you're in the middle of a, of a plague pandemic. And I thought, oh my lordy, you know, we're living this again. And people are still being dicks like Patrick Simon, Simon Patrick, you know, writing to married women. They're still going off and to the you know, he was just before raves and, and, you know, sort of pamper parties. It's like we're in a pandemic, people. Put your bloody mask on. But, you know, perhaps we've learned nothing. Who knows? Can I, can I, let me just say one thing. One thing um, that, that having experienced, you know, this current pandemic versus researching the other one is we are more cut off than they were because... Um, neighbors were helping each other survive even in london with the par the parishes were there trying to take care of people a lot of people left but there were you know you would have a nurse uh you know an older woman who would come and live with your family you were cut off and quarantined but with your family with your street with you know simon patrick the real simon patrick i have no doubt was going knocking door to door every day giving them prayers giving them food baskets um, you would have conversations with people through the window. The physical contact was still there, which I find very interesting in the sense of community. And I think right now with our, the pandemic as we have it, we are just cut off in a very different way. Um, that, that physical warmth is just not there. Um, you know, when people talk about loneliness right now, it's because like my best friends are spread out around the globe. They're not in my neighborhood the way they would have been during the plague uh, of 1665. That's all I want to say. So Tina, my world in a way is a little bit warmer than <laughs> a little bit, a little bit anyway. Um, now two of you are debuts, uh, Tina and Vicky, but, and Kat, this is your third published novel. Um, I have no idea how many novels you've all written that haven't been published, um, so I can't comment on that. What is it like being published and getting ready for your book to coming out? Obviously Vicky, you're in the US. So what's it been like having your publisher a thousand miles away? Is it actually, do you think it's been easier because the whole world has gone virtual? Has that made it actually easier for you? I just think it's a dream come true 
that's all I think. Like, I'm just like, this is amazing. And like, it's just amazing, right? Like, you made a that's book. All I think I made a book. <laughs> and you're going to make another one too. Like, and a, yeah. 2022. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's my, my thoughts don't go further than that. Just in it. And I'm like, it's being published in the UK. I'm like, it's, sorry, uh, it's fancy. It's it fancy that. to be published in the UK. <sighs> sorry, guys. <laughs> well, it's mostly fancy, though. I like that. So um, fancy. <laughs> Kat, this is your third novel that's been published. Has it been a very different experience to your previous ones? Totally different for all sorts of reasons. Um, it was, uh, you know, my first, I, th I think this is because, I, possibly because I think, as I said, this is a novel which I really went out on a limb for and just wrote what I really wanted to write. It was the novel which tested me the most and I had the most fun with. So, I, And it seems to be the one that people have so far, I mean, it's not even out yet, I must get ahead of myself. But, um, people seem to be responding most to so that's different. It is completely different preparing for publication in virtually, I mean, not least because of the slight chance, just the very slight chance, because it's all happening at such a remove that you might have made it up. Like, <laughs> is it, like, is it really happening? Like, was any, did anyone else witness this Zoom call that I had with Miranda, supposedly, you know? Um, so it's, it has that strange kind of distant, distant feeling. I think that, um, people seem to be buying books, which is fantastic. Please keep buying books, everyone. My God. Um, although the audience for this probably don't need persuading. Um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's very surreal. It's hopefully um, everybody's just making the best of a very strange situation. But it, it, there, is, there is a lack of, of like tactile stuff. You don't get to meet like booksellers. You don't get to like I would love to be sitting at, a, you know, doing this panel at a table with all of you, um, you know, in a, in a in a place that sells books and then chatting about it afterwards. That was, that, that, that's one of the great joys of promoting a book is you get to meet such wonderful people and talk about writing the whole time, which no one ever lets you do. So I miss that. I do miss that. But I, I think all things considered, mm -hmm. we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're fight, fight, fighting the good fight, really. <laughs> and Tina, by the time this airs, your book will have been out for a week. Um, how have you found the run-up to publication? Has it been exciting? It's, it, it is that surreal thing. I think I'm in a, a simulation. Like I have made it all up because my husband's a gamer. He's convinced of it. But I don't know what I'm missing. I have never been to a literary festival. This is my first one. I was physically going to go there. I don't drink anymore because of the inappropriate behaviour. Uh, but I was really, you know, and I'm a hugger. You know, I was going to hug people. All right, I was probably going to people as well but you know Harrogate, Harrogate was going to be my first and it is my first but you know I'm in my living room with my cats and I've sent Jeff to bed because he can't play Call of Duty because Miranda has banned him because of my bandwidth so he's sulking in bed so I don't know I'm assuming it wouldn't have been like that I assume we'd have been in a travel lodge or somewhere together you know I'll I be in a travel lodge with all of you yeah. I would love that too yeah. <laughs> yeah. bring it on yeah. yes. so, my dream of a travel lodge right now particularly nice so I don't know what I'm missing fair enough um, now as you say because of 2020 we haven't been able to gather at conventions or festivals and actually I don't think that any of you three have met in real life mm -hmm. um no 
I mean, you did run me ragged at the Viper Christmas Zoom party, but never, I've only ever met virtually. So I thought I'd give you the opportunity just to grill each other uh, so I can sit back a bit. I believe you have each prepared a question for one of the other authors. So Kat, you're up first. Ask your question of whoever. Yes. Okay, so I, well, I was going to ask Tina about, because um, one of the things that, and I don't think I'm alone here, I think one of the things that really gripped me about Call Me Mummy was the way that Tonya is so well realised. She's five years old. It's very, as you, and you said earlier, her voice is very loud in the book, but she's a very convincing five-year-old. She's very, and, and you, it's incredibly vivid and jumps off the page. I wondered is it, if you had any special ways of addressing writing children or whether it was difficult or how you found that experience? Well, kids quite like me. I did work with Roland Rat on TVAM, and uh, one of my biggest job rejections was I could have overpowered the puppet. Um, don't know what that means. And they didn't like my hair. Uh, but it was like, you know, so I did work on the Wide Awake Club and some kids shows. And, and I think because I'm just a big kid. So there is that. But I've not got a lot of hands-on experience. So I did ask people who've got actual human children uh, what, what that's like. And, but then, you know, I'm married to a big kid as well. And I'm quite glad. I'm really relieved that people think it's convincing. But also the kids that I grew up with, like we were all working, you know, I've worked all my life. Like when we were like six or seven, we were on the coconut shy, we were on the candy floss store. So, you know, you, you get to talk to adults in a different way. So you do know the, the, the rude language and you're sort of like little tomboys running around a bit wild, I suppose. So I'm really relieved that it's realistic because... That was that was one of my many fears, but it's definitely now, yeah, now that you say it, I do see a, a you in her. <laughs> yeah, oh no, she's very much Tonya. Okay, Vicky, do you have a question? Yeah, um, and Kat, this is for Kat, and you actually, uh, you, you mentioned this earlier. You said, you know, if you're not afraid when you're writing something, you don't see how the reader can be afraid. And then you say that you write your nightmares every day. And so, so that, was, that goes straight to my question for you, which is when you're writing a scene, like what are you thinking about? What are the tools, the techniques as you're writing it so that what you actually write is going to evoke an emotion in the reader? And I'm talking the emotion here specifically of horror, dread, gothic horror. How do you know it's gonna? How the? How do you know it's gonna actually move them and make them feel it versus just fall flat? Like, what are you doing? Well, the key. I think the key to this is 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 um, empathy. Horror doesn't exist without empathy. So if you are empathising with the people who whose whose consciousness the novel is asking you to inhabit, then you're going to you're going to be with them on that. So uh, I think in a more maybe in a more sort of diagrammatic way, I think that. One thing that always unsettles us is not knowing where to locate the horror in a scene. We're being surprised by suddenly realizing that actually the, the thing to fear where we thought it was a physical thing is actually something uh, emotional or, 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 um, or, or from within. Um, I think that, that because that, that plays on all of our fears of ourselves and our surroundings. Mm -hmm. But I, also, I, I, think, I really do think the key is like, the, the two-sided coin of any kind of horror narrative is is compassion and horror, and if you have if you have 
the one you can evoke the other i don't i don't think you can you can scare someone without making them care first i think that's absolutely true there are plenty of horror novels where you you're just it's scare after scare but you don't really care about anyone in it and it just it just doesn't it quite work mistakes. yeah they have it yeah. has to matter exactly and tina you might by process of eliminate elimination you have a question for vicky i do um what have the historicals got to teach us about the currents so you know we're in the middle of this now um is there anything in your research that tips for survival really how can we be more team penelope yes i think there is one thing that penelope understands that the others in the book don't um, and we were actually talking about this this morning at my at my work editorial meeting we don't we only talk about coronavirus these days um, and we were talking about the 1918 flu pandemic and in the u.s that killed about 675,000 people which is huge and we never thought we'd get anywhere near it and we are and somebody said will we ever learn um will we ever like hubris will we ever learn about that and um somebody said i'm probably even mispronouncing it right hubris it's a very old greek word like it's been around forever and it was the problem in that plague epidemic. It's the problem, at least in the US, for this coronavirus. People just, it was all around them, plague, in a much more, not much more, for some people in a very visceral way, they would come across people dying of plague in the streets. Um, and they, the Sam Peeps, right, uh, the Navy clerk that I think most people, if you're into 17th century history, you know about Sam Peeps because he left behind his diaries. He's running around town, still doing his business, jumping over plague bodies and just going, oh, there's another one dead, like never really thinking he's going to get it. He, he, he was a terrible adulterer. Uh, he had affairs all over the place, taking advantage of women all over the place, kept right at it and at an even more frenetic play, pace, it seems, during the plague. And so that is like our that is the thing we need to learn but i don't know that we're ever going to learn that it seems to be very much a part of the human mind which is it's not going to happen to us um and penelope for some reason she knows it could happen it does happen she's not an arrogant character in that way um she takes things very seriously um the very real tragedies that can happen to people. She's experienced them, she sees them, and she believes them. So that is the thing I think that we could learn, whether it's some people learn it, whether or not we as a society, as a species on this planet will learn. Can I tell a story about peeps? Yes. Okay, sorry, that was amazing. Sorry, Miranda. Sorry, Miranda. My mom is reading, my, I'm in a bubble with my mom because she's recovering from something now and um she she's reading Peeps's diaries and she's she she's come to identify with him in a rather troublingly deep way mm. um <laughs> she just loves him and i opened the door i said to check on her the other day and i was like how are you doing she went peeps has buried the parmesan <laughs> what are you talking about anyway he apparently buried his parmesan to keep it safe from the fire but it was a it was quite an intense He's thing to someone to say to you first thing in the morning he, he, the reason why Peeps is such a character even today is because he's so real. There's nothing stiff in his diary. Like it's not stiff and formal. Like Simon Patrick's letters, there's still some formality to them. Peeps was not afraid to write 
his very real emotions yeah. Uh, yeah. in that diary. And that's why he resonates with all of us. And that's why uh, I, I love reading his diaries because you can, you see this unexpected behavior. We'd all like to think at pre coronavirus that we would do the right sensible thing in a pandemic. You think he'd be horrified to know <laughs> he's being read by people, people shrieking with laughter at him burying the Parmesan. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he would enjoy it. He loved attention. He was he such didn't. an attention seeker. He loved attention. Anyway. Well, we've given him plenty now. Yes. We've covered cheese. Sorry, Miranda. COVID. <laughs> um, we've got a few audience questions. Um, thank you so much if you sent in a question. Um, I probably won't get through all of them. We did get a sidetrack by cheese, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> Um, now, I really love this question, and so I'm just going to start with this random one. Do you Google yourself and read your own book reviews? Um, obviously, I would like to know all of you, but let's just start with Tina. Um, I have read the book reviews. I've been warned not to, uh, but most of the time they cheer me up. Even if they're rubbish, I just think, oh, well, you know, somebody's read it. So, yeah, you know, and I just did my very first book club as well as my first festival online. So, you know, there were loads of comments about that. It was like people reviewing the book as they were going along and I was in it with them and it was all online. And again, I've now got 6,000 new friends. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Vicky, have you been, have you been Googling yourself? Uh, I, I, I've looked at some of the reviews on Goodreads and on Twitter, and I do like reading them, even the bad ones, because I want to know it's about learning the craft. And I want to know what I did well that stuck with people that resonated with them and what kind of points flopped or failed. So I do read them. I will say the most devastating review came from my own brother on Goodreads. He gave my book four out of five stars. Oh. And I'm like, of my own brother. Oh man, we're not give, we won't give him a copy of the next one if he won't exactly. learn to play ball. Cat, mm -mm, um, mm -mm. you've you've had two books out already, so you must have racked up a lot more sort of online. I've learned I've learned not to. No, um, no. I, well, not not currently. Anyway, I just I, I'm aware also that I've written something that's deliberately supposed to be quite challenging. You know, it's in in all sorts of ways. How will I, well? How do I expect people to react? Do I expect them to react universally approvingly? No. Um, I don't know that I think Goodreads has that much to tell me about the craft necessarily. I think it can tell you about it can, it can it can tell you if, if people if some certain thing isn't working but you know what? it's too late it's published yeah like, <laughs> the time is gone there's no point worrying yeah. anymore um we've got one specifically for you cat uh your books so far have all been standalones would you ever write a series or do you just prefer standalone novels i think i i think i felt that to date that I, every every book was sort of a, was a springboard into different territory from the last and I all, I've noticed this these commonalities you you bring a few thematic things from the last book but you use it to jump off into a different different area and so far that's been a case I actually did have an idea for a series quite recently um I don't know what that would be you like told me about that <laughs> in all in good time my darling um <laughs> but um I mean it's not didn't say it was a good series. No, it's um. I, I think it's there's a, there's a sort of hesitance about committing to something that's that's long term. So you owe loyalty not only to to the characters, but also you you've got to make sure you can spend that long in one place with with the same people. And I really admire people who do it. I, I haven't yet, but I did. Never say never. Okay, thank you. That was very very equivocal. Um, and then Tina, how long did it take you to write the book? Um, this one, I, I wrote the first scene, which was set in mother care, 
by the time it came out, mother care didn't exist anymore. So probably a couple of years. But you know, it's never just that, is it? You're, you're writing other things at the same time and you're editing. So, but a good couple of years, I'd say, if you need, if you're going to press me on a figure. Okay. I think that's pretty impressive, actually, to write a debut novel in two years, especially when you're working for it. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty quick. Um, I'm going to ask this one to Vicky. Does writing energise or exhaust you? Uh, energise. Um, it does. It energises. And then when I'm finished for the day, uh, it's a good kind of exhaustion. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, there's, it's, it's a good kind of exhaustion. Yeah. <laughs> Tina, what about you? I, I imagine it energizes you. Um, it, it just depends which bit I'm writing. Um, I get what, what Vicky's saying, you know, it's like doing an aerobics class, you know, on those rare moments, you're like Phantom of the Opera. It's very energizing. And then, you know, you fall asleep. But on those bits, when you're just reworking that same paragraph for the whole mm. time, and, and it's like my brain fogs, that's exhausting. You know, the real focus bits where it just doesn't seem to be happening. Ooh. And a last one for Kat. Do your characters ever surprise you? All the time, yeah, all, all the time. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed by when they do quite naturally something which I haven't thought of. Uh, I, I, I think, again it's that tightrope that you walk isn't it about uh kind of an organized kind of um plan planned sort of you know um writing and this very surprising kind of from the depths yes they do i i think almost everyone in fact everyone in in Need, every character in needless street surprised me hugely um at one point or another um and they you know, I, I think it's a well, too well-worn a phrase, you know, to, they took on a life of their own. They certainly took the reins of narrative from me, which was... I'm, I'm really intrigued as to what bits did what now. Okay. I will, I'll need a breakdown yeah. later. Yeah. But uh, I think we have come to the end of our time. Um, I'd really like to thank Tina, Kat and Vicky. Um, all, many of these books will be, will be out or, and they're all available for pre-order now. You can pick up Tina's right now and uh, you can pre-order cats and vickies as well and get a pin and get a pin if you pre-order cats um so i really hope you found this interesting and it just piqued your interest in the viper list in 2021 and thank you so much thanks for reaching the end of the episode we hope you enjoyed it it would be great if you could do us a quick favor and head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five star and then leave a nice glowing review. It'll help boost the podcast up the charts, which makes it easier for more people to find us and join our exciting podcast community.